0: It's really chilling. I mean, it's horrible, actually. Obviously, it's horrible. It's grotesque what's going on. After the gold rush,
1: our rural Ireland has been selected as a green sacrifice zone by the global mining industry and Irish government and what local communities are doing about it. Episode 6, Degrowth is the only hope, the only hope is degrowth. We must massively reduce consumption and the production of waste. It's a cultural and moral change we need. There is no technological fix. In fact, technological innovation encourages us to keep consuming and keep wasting. We must change the way we see the world and the way we interact with nature. We must regain the respect we used to have for the soil, the water, the air, the mountains, the birds, the bees, the fish, the animals, the trees. We must live within our means, and that means living within the earth's means. If we want a livable future, then it will be a future where everyone walks and cycles a lot more, where cars are a rarity, and public transport is easy to get and affordable, where we use technology, including phones, a lot less, and we use our brains a lot more, where most of our day is in physical interactions with other people, with animals, with birds and bees and trees, where flying is an expensive rarity, where houses and apartments are a modest size And are exceptionally well insulated. Where we repair everything and hold on to everything for as long as possible. Where we buy only what we use a lot and rent the rest. Where we have a deep respect for materials. Where waste is rare and those who waste willingly are treated as social outcasts where billionaires go extinct and are a horror story we tell our children. Caroline White is an ecological economist doing research and advocacy for Fiasta, the Irish Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability. Her particular interests are in post-growth finance and climate justice. She contributed to Fiesta's books, Fleeing Vesuvius and Sharing for Survival, and is the author of many submissions and discussion papers on well-being economics. She is a member of numerous bodies and groups, including the Irish National Economic and Social Council, the Well-Being Economy Hub for Ireland, the Irish Environmental Pillar and Stop Climate Chaos Ireland. Caroline sets out a clear and achievable path for a sustainable future where the well-being of humans and all life can flourish.
0: What kind of an economy do we want? The core thing is fairness. And as a rule, most of us anyway tend to prefer fairness over efficiency, for example. Like fairness is a huge core value. We could meet the needs of everybody in 2050, which is more people than now, you know, taking into account population growth we could meet everybody's needs and they could all have a dignified life if we used about 40 percent of the energy that we use now a lot of the energy that's used now is just really used in incredibly stupid wasteful ways if we can cut out a lot of that then we can retain, you know, really high quality uses of energy and have much, much less demand for it, you know, and have people's needs met. It's a challenge of course, because so much of our infrastructure is geared around this very wasteful use of energy. So it's going to need some big changes in all kinds of ways. And a lot of kind of upfront expenses, things like, you know, retrofitting of houses and that kind of thing, which costs a lot at the beginning, but then after that it costs nothing, you know, it's done and then you're, you're basically saving for the rest of the time. The kind of ideology that you hear seems to be this, we have these huge, huge, huge demands for energy, and that's just going to continue like that, for energy and for stuff, for materials, And that's just the way it is. It's the way we are and the population's getting bigger too, you know, so there's, we're going to need even more of all of these things. Therefore we need to just keep on extracting and extracting so that we can get the stuff that we all need. We really need to step back from that and think, well, what's the actual point here? What's the purpose of all of this, you know, rushing around, extracting and producing stuff, making energy available and so on and using it in enormous quantities there are ways in which we could be using much less energy. And yes, most people would actually be having a better life in a lot of ways, because the way that energy is is distributed at the moment is so incredibly uneven. The top 10% generate over 50% of the world's carbon emissions, for example. If you look at the projections that the um, International Energy Agency makes about the need for renewable energy in the future, there's an inbuilt assumption in them of 2.8% growth per year in in energy use. And in fact, if you actually look at what people really need, that's really a very questionable assumption. Um, If you actually look at surveys and research that's been done around the world about what people say they actually want in their lives as opposed to the real priorities for people it's got nothing to do with having more and more and more stuff it's got to do with basic core needs the Wellbeing economy alliance it's um it's identified five core human needs there's fairness nature connection participation and dignity and these are all things for which we need we need a certain amount of stuff if we're going to live with dignity for example and we need to have access to a certain amount of resources if we're going to be able to participate in communities and so on but there's a limit you know you don't need infinite access to stuff for any of those things and you don't need an infinite expansion of production either so I think a really good way to think about all this is to sort of turn turn the whole question about what the mining is for upside down and think about, well, what's the energy for what's, you know, how can we meet our energy need, needs in a way that doesn't require such a huge emphasis on extraction and extractivism. And that's actually making sure everybody's needs are met in a different way. That's uh, much more balanced, um, both in terms of actually making sure people's needs are met because a lot of people's needs aren't met now, even with the incredible amount of energy that's being used. And also in terms of the the impact on the planets as well. It's really important to take a global approach and to to emphasize solidarity in science the way that economics often gets talked about or treated is it's as though it's um, a hard science, particularly the sort of mainstream economics that you get taught in, in first year in university or whatever, that kind of thing. It's taught as though it's some sort of objective reality and the values that are embedded in it are neutral. And in fact, when you look at it you know more carefully or you dig a little bit deeper, you can see that there's all kinds of assumptions in there about human nature and what people really need. And they're not based in science at all. They're they're just assumptions and they're pulled out of the air in a lot of cases. When you look at them from today's perspective, you can see how just um, strange they are in a lot of ways. There's a strong element of misogyny in there as well. It's really important to not just take things that are sometimes treated as though they're scientific, as though they are actually scientific. And by scientific, I mean, you know, they've been tested out, they've been tested in in the real life with experiments, you know, there's, there's, and they can be falsified as well, you can check to see if, you know, if there's a way to, to prove them right or wrong. All these things are just almost treated like more like religious beliefs that you're just supposed to take on faith. So I think the whole ideology of growth really fits with that very closely, because it fits into this whole sort of you know vision of, of what human nature is and that we're all essentially very selfish or self-absorbed and we just if we think if we think we are not just because we're kidding ourselves you know <laughs> or if we have friends who say they are just, they're they're kidding themselves and we're all you know if you just if you're honest about this stuff you know we're all just basically very self-absorbed there's been interesting research too about for example showing how economics students are much more likely to think that way than other students because they've been trained to think that you know they've been taught to think that's the way people are and then again there's just such fascinating evidence from around the world if you look at anthropological studies and so on about just how differently people can interact with each other and how there isn't really a hard fast rule i mean i'm not trying to argue we're all basically lovely and cuddly all the time either I, that would be equally ridiculous obviously we aren't in fact there's a huge variation in in human behavior and in the things that we tend to do under certain circumstances and if anything can be kind of proven or you know there is a pattern that can be discerned in all of this it's the five needs that i talked about a few minutes ago It's that th- there are these basic needs that we all have and if you can find ways to make the economy stabler and more fair and encourage you know enable more participation and so on then i think a lot of this kind of drive to overconsume and so on that seems so ingrained would, would actually evaporate or at very least diminish a lot because so much of it is, is actually rooted in this, this kind of core stress and instability. That's why I like to think about solidarity and science together. I think those two things are both really, really important. The global level is extremely important in all of this because when you think about the incredible disparities in energy use around the world, first of all, and also the fact that some countries have a stronger legal system than others. We have a situation where, for example, in Central America, people who are fighting or struggling to protect areas from mining are literally being shot dead. I think we need to really make sure that, you know, whatever vision we're building and whatever strategy we want to follow, we're going to do it in a way that takes into account the needs of everybody that's ties in with all kinds of really interesting stuff to do with the legacy of colonialism and climate injustice as well as uh, mining injustice so much of the damage is being done by really a rather small group of people and most of us have far far more in common than we have apart you know difference. so i think uh, we can really learn from each other's experiences as well and we can help each other with this transition as well it's very interesting To me as well, there's a lot of division from what I hear, from what I understand in, in a lot of the global south countries between the kind of mainstream, more elite group who, you know, people who tend to be very in favor of standard sort of growth visions of the economy and so on, and then say indigenous people or people, communities of color or people who are cut off from the kind of mainstream economy and who tend to have a very different vision of what they want. And I think there's an awful lot of common ground that could be found between these, you know, this, this latter group, these latter groups and people who are campaigning against mining in the north as well. The thing about regulations is that I think if everybody agrees they're fair, then they're the best way often to get things done. And the thing is, everybody has to agree that they're fair or they're all the the most important people. In this case, the the people who are being disempowered at the moment have to agree they're fair. The main idea is just that there would be a limit. There'd be a hard cap on the actual extraction of of fossil fuel at source and also on on the extraction of minerals. And in the case of minerals, of course, I think there's also the potential for recycling of minerals. When we're making decisions about mining it's very important to have public participation and community participation in that otherwise it's it's a kind of dictatorship i mean there is such a thing as eco-fascism you know that we you know there's this whole um idea that it's fine to just breeze in and tell people on the ground what to do and there needs to be a really transparent process if there's going to be some thought of mining in an area the process needs to be completely transparent and the communities need to have the right to say no as well that's really important if you look at their policy statement it's quite a strange document I mean it's like a brochure it reads to me like a brochure come and mine in Ireland you know wonderful country welcoming people I mean that's the way it reads there's mention of community participation but it's it's what they the way that's defined is giving accurate information to communities about mining (laughs) so that's a rather one way, and I would say rather biased definition of participation. It's really chilling. I mean, it's horrible, actually, obviously it's horrible. It's grotesque what's going on. And we have to, we have to be talking about this overall, where they think they're going with this. There's no way anybody would actually own up and say, oh, oh, yeah, we're going to do green sacrifice, <laughs> they wouldn't say that openly. But, and again, it's all predicated on this, on a growth assumption. The whole ideology behind that is just really really dubious and um i think being talking about that kind of thing in public is important i think also it's helpful to look at what's going on and what why there's such a rush a kind of a scramble to mine and to open up the economy to mining part of the reason i think is not the only reason because there are you know there's seems to be evidence good evidence for corruption and then so on as well but but i think part of the reason is also it's got to do with the way the financial system works in essence it's got to do with illicit financial flows you want to get money flowing into your country and you want to keep it there as much as you can and you don't want it to to run away again so you want to have a uh, country that seemed to be in good economic shape which basically means expanding the economy is growing. I think a way to help to rebalance that and stop that is to look at, uh, well, what's what's actually happening with all this money and what's it doing and how can we stop it behaving in this bad way? So part of that is looking at things like tax havens and where is money going? I think there's an awful lot that could be done on that. So I think the whole issue of, of stopping or closing off tax havens is really important because that can help money to keep circulating in, in the economy. In Ireland, for example, there's a very limited banking sector. There's only two really big commercial banks left and very little else. But in other countries, they have publicly owned banks and mutual banks that are owned by communities. And these kinds of banks keep money circulating in the community. You know, essentially it's a way of, of making you less reliant on foreign investment and foreign companies coming in to do mining or whatever. So it's it's a way to, to keep the money circulating in your community. And by the way, it's not, it's not depriving other communities either because they can be doing that too. There's also the issue of debt and the fact that a lot of the global South countries have these onerous debts imposed on them and that makes it hard for them to get away from things like mining because they're under huge pressure to open up their economies to get money to pay off debt and so on. So there's a international movement for restructuring deaths and cancelling a lot of deaths. And I think that's, again, that's a really important thing to think about. All of this stuff is linked. That's the thing. It's easy to think of them as as a, as, as a sort of separate problem. But in fact, it's actually really intimately linked with the issue of mining and extractivism generally. Things like what, like what we call in FASTA commons-based taxation, which is when you're taxing the use of something that belongs to everybody, like, for example, well, the atmosphere or a lake or And you're making sure that everybody benefits from the fact that you're using it, that you're not just acting as a rentier and taking without giving anything back. In some cases, you just have to prohibit it. There's a campaign to change the mandate of the world trade organization for example so this instead of emphasizing trade liberalization which it does now it, it emphasizes sustainability and and social cohesion and and so on also the imf and the world bank all of these things like these those three for example you know the wto imf world bank they're all extremely undemocratic in their structure and their structure and their governance is really a legacy of colonialism I don't think we should just assume it's impossible to do anything. You know, I think if there's enough will, enough popular pressure, then things can happen. It's never going to be perfect, but I think it could definitely be better than it is now. So I think tying in the whole mining issue with these broader issues to do with trade imbalance, another interesting and horrible thing about trade imbalance is the fact that the global south is directly really subsidizing the global north's development rather than the other way around. There's a huge amount more money going from the south to the north and vice versa. and Because at the moment it's as though the money system, or yeah, the money supply, if you like, it's privatized. It's commercial banks that create most money on the basis of debt as well it's money that has to be paid back and that sets up this whole really unhealthy dynamic in the economy and again this is something that could be changed and it's actually it's extremely easy to change it's just that the political will needs to be there and i think the political will can be there if there's enough popular pressure for it to be there if you look at what's actually caused change in the world an awful lot of the time it comes from popular pressure and communities that's the way get the change gets done it's through community action number one
1: Reduce consumption and energy use by at least 40%. Number two, do this with a global approach, emphasizing solidarity, science, and fairness. Number three, set clear and binding limits on mineral extraction, along with other forms of resource extraction, including fossil fuels. Number four, make decision-making participatory and truly democratic. Number five, democratize the financial system, restructure and cancel global south debts, and particularly support community-based banking. We need a society of values and morals, and instead we have accepted an economy of goods. Instead, of modern technology being used to help us develop better societies, it has been used to develop better economies of consumption. Social media at core is targeted advertising. To address the multiple crises we face, we must think about the society of nature. And the foundation of that thinking, as Caroline puts it, is fairness. We must reduce energy, material use and waste by at least 40%. And the only possible way to do this is true fairness. We must challenge the assumption that we must keep consuming and growing and that we can keep on doing this sustainably because now we're going to have this so-called green transition and all this so-called renewable energy and everything's going to be all right. Just keep on consuming. It won't be all right. It isn't all right. We've already crossed boundaries to transport an 80 kg mammal. Using a 15 kg machine, not a 2,000 kg machine, that's our objective. A bicycle, not an SUV planet destroyer. Reduce materials, reduce weight. A small apartment is better than a big apartment. Dreams of less. The point of life is to live well with the least possible materials. That is the highest form of human development and achievement. A fairer world is a more sustainable world. A more communal world is more energy and material efficient. Extreme individualism leads to extreme waste. It's the laws of physics. Through their bottomless greed, the elites and the SUV driving middle class are destroying conditions for life on earth. Private jet sales are likely to reach their highest ever level in 2023, having more than doubled over the past two decades. The top 1% of emitters produce over a thousand times more CO2 than the bottom 1%. The world's top 1% emit 110 tonnes of CO2 a year. The bottom 50% emit 1.5 tonnes. Between 1995 and 2021, the wealthiest 1% captured 38% of total wealth growth, while the bottom 50% captured only 2%. The rise in extreme wealth is mirrored By the rise in extreme poverty and the rise of extreme weather. Making the top 20% of Europeans use energy more modestly can reduce overall European energy needs by 10%, a 2023 nature study found. Making sure poorer Europeans have enough energy would have a minimal impact. The elites are not alone in their destructive power. The middle class is not far behind. Imagine if the whole middle class decided to live truly sustainable lifestyles. Think of what could be done. In Ireland, such a fair world will be the hardest of hard cells. In the last 10 years, we have done nothing but accelerate towards the climate crisis. 2013, seven out of the ten best-selling cars in Ireland were either small or medium hatchbacks with only two saloons and one SUV. 2023, seven out of the ten best-selling cars are SUVs or crossovers. Ireland, a small but proud member of the groat Debt Cult. One thing that struck me about what Caroline said was when she stated that economics has very rarely behaved as a science. More often, it's a philosophy or a cult, a growth, debt, cult. Traditional economics is the greed is good philosophy. Many economists and the business people whose actions they are paid to legitimise would laugh at the very idea of well-being and fairness and soppy stuff like that not living in the real world they'd say naive if everyone is truly themselves the economics credo goes everyone admits that they are selfish and greedy that selfishness and greed are the only true drivers that really matter when it comes to economics and human behaviour in general. What this thinking reflects, Caroline suggests, is more a window into the soul of macho, often misogynist economists, who see nature as natural resources. She mentions a study about selfish economics students. In a study published in 1993, Robert Frank and colleagues from Cornell University, United States of America, tested this idea with a version of the Prisoner's Dilemma game. Economics students informed on other players 60% of the time, while those studying other subjects did so 39% of the time. Men have previously been found to be more self-interested in such tests, and more men study economics than women. However, even after controlling for this sex difference, Frank found economic students were 17% more likely to take the selfish route when playing the prisoner's dilemma. A group of economic students were more likely to see themselves and others as more self-interested following their studies than a control group studying astronomy. This was especially true among those studying under a tutor who taught game theory and focused on notions of survival imperatives, meditating against cooperation. Subsequent work has questioned some of these findings, suggesting that selfish people are just more likely to study economics in the first place, which, in a way, proves the point. As economist and statistician Eli Devons once said, if economists wished to study the horse, they wouldn't go and look at horses. They'd sit in their studies and say to themselves, what would I do? If I were a horse, the selfish are, of course, self-centred. William Nordhaus won the Nobel Prize for integrating climate change into economic theory. Sort of. For him, an increase of 3.5 degrees by 2100 might be an economically desirable outcome. Arvea Maraini writes... Seemingly, some economists think a global temperature rise of 4 degrees Celsius by 2150 is economically desirable. While others claim that a 6 degree rise would cause a limited loss of 10% of global GDP. Weird. Weird. Truly weird. To put things in perspective... A six degree increase would turn the earth into a scorching wasteland, Arvea Mariani states. What an economics of selfishness has delivered us is a fragile world based on greed that dumps wholly unsustainable toxic deaths on the environment. We are devouring the future to live well in the present. Our economies, have built engines to extract from and waste the earth in an incredibly short period of time. We overdraw materials in the blink of an eye from a past that took billions of years to form and tax our children and their children and leave them with impossible deaths. The signals are flashing red and our response is to pretend and lie. The indications are that our time is quickly running out. Greed has made us fast and furious, and yet deep inside us, many of us long for egalitarianism and fairness. Traditional economists would call this immature, delusional, wishful thinking, and yet The evidence of fairness building more robust and sustainable societies is much stronger than the evidence scarce belief that selfishness is the path to progress. We must remember that economics is a discipline built more on faith than on fact and that one of the most important skills economists are trained on is overconfidence economist and philosopher Kenneth Boulding once said that anyone who believes exponential growth can go on forever in a finite world is either a madman or an economist. It is indeed a growth debt cult masquerading as a rational man's club. Not all economists think this way of course. Herman Daly who is a senior economist at the World Bank, said that the current national accounting system treats the earth as a business in liquidation. And of course, the selfish economists were not alone in their view of humans as inherently selfish. Two world wars in 20 years, the Holocaust, the nuclear bomb, the 20th century did not paint a good picture of human nature. In 1954, William Golding published his dystopian Lord of the Flies about the cruelty and selfishness of children stranded on an island. Everyone nodded in agreement and the book became a standard part of the educational curriculum. The 1971 Stanford Prison Experiment seemed to confirm that humans were casually cruel. In another study, the bystander effect found that if someone was in peril, others would simply walk by. In 1976, Richard Dawkins published The Selfish Gene, where he would describe humans as survival machines. However, even in Dawkins' book, he stressed that genes were not destiny and over the years he has made it clear that he doesn't want to live in such a Darwinian society. In a great many places he would not have to. Humans, while far from perfect, have generally behaved much better than the classical economists and psychologists were predicting. In fact, Those behind the prison experiment and bystander effect studies were found to have behaved badly by manipulating and distorting the results in order to paint the grimmest picture of human nature. The bystander effect has been disproven multiple times. Weird as it may sound, strangers do help strangers who are in trouble. Golding's Fiction met reality when stories of actual shipwrecked children from Tonga on an actual remote island found that they cooperated and shared and survived and remained friends. If a society is judged by its endurance over time, then this was almost certainly the most successful society in human history And by a considerable margin, James Sussman writes about the fiercely egalitarian and fair Juhansi. New genomic analysis suggests that the Juhansi and their ancestors lived continuously in southern Africa from soon after modern Homo sapiens settled there, most likely around 200 thousand years ago. In Juhansi society nobody was allowed to get above themselves. If a hunter brought home a great quantity of meat everyone would slag and ridicule and laugh at the quality and the scrawniness of it even as they eagerly were feasting on it. It reminded me of the community I grew up in in Ireland and the ethos of the Gaelic Athletic Association. Where the better the player you are, the more humble you're supposed to be. And where, when a club wins a championship, the captain spends an interminable length of time thanking everyone involved, because the mothers who made the sandwiches for after Tuesday night training deserve deep thanks and respect. Fairness tamps down greed and extreme individualism, and where there's less greed, there's less environment-destroying SUVs, less extraction, less material use, less waste. In network design, for example, communal-oriented design that broadcasts to large numbers are much more energy and material efficient than individualistic systems that deliver what you want when you want it with the speed and hyper fast latency of 5G. We were all hunter-gatherers for 200,000 years, all communalists, so fairness is in our DNA somewhere. It is more than possible to rebuild sustainable societies Based on fairness, slowness and communal design. Fairness to the water, to the soil, to the air, to all life. Fairness and community gives us paths out of the growth dead cult. And in Ireland, we dearly need those paths. During this podcast, I've talked about how the Shannon Estuary where the 75 million ton dump of red mud lies was one of Ireland's very first green sacrifice zones, with all the pollution and suffering that went with it. Based in the estuary, Money Point was for years Ireland's largest coal burning station. In 2003, reacting to the fact that Money Point was the largest single source of CO2 emissions in Ireland, accounting for more than 5 million tonnes a year. Mr Paul Mulvaney, the power station's manager, said the ESB had made an economic decision not to convert the station to run on natural gas. He said that, This power station was designed to burn coal, and it does that efficiently. Has there ever been a more dangerous and damaging concept than economic efficiency? It is economic efficiency and innovation that has created such monumental waste and pollution. With practically every innovative efficiency, overall energy use went up. Overall waste went up. Overall pollution went up. The destruction and waste of the environment is good for growth, a good economic decision. Efficiency is more important than life. Efficiency's first cousin, innovation, is often confused with doing good. Not true. Industrial and technological innovation has focused on energy and has seen the environment as raw materials to be used to achieve that efficiency, combined with a dump for the waste resulting from these efficiency gains. In the last episode, Pietro Jar said that when he studied engineering 40 years ago, the obsession was with unit efficiency, and that nothing has changed, because... When his son studied engineering 10 years ago, the obsession with unit efficiency was still there. As Pietro pointed out, technological efficiency has always led to massive increases in production and consumption, thus always leading to jumps in energy use and waste. In fact, innovation and efficiency often has an exponential impact on waste production, particularly toxic waste production. So the issue should be tackled at the root, Pietro told me. Let's try to train engineers who understand how to decrease the number of cars used, not how to make the cars more efficient. And that means breaking the debt grip of the growth debt cult. We must choose life, choose well-being of all life, because at the end of the day, the environment is the only thing that is too big to fail. We must live within the boundaries of our environment. Instead, in Ireland right now, We consume about three to four earths worth of resources every year to meet our growth debt cult status. This is not an equal world. In Jamaica, they basically live within the earth's boundaries and regenerative capacities. Ireland demands many earths worth of extra resources from nature, in the form of an environmental overdraft. We spend now of the reserves the Earth has built up over billions of years so that our children and their children can pay later in the form of hotter temperatures, polluted air, polluted water, destroyed soil, wasted materials and resources. Whatever we are doing in Ireland, We are certainly not doing it for our children. We are doing it to our children. In our planet-destroying SUVs, we are devouring their future along with the futures of our birds and bees, our fish and trees. In 50 years, we have managed to eliminate over 60% of our birds. Not an achievement to be proud of. And yet, gung-ho proud we are of our premium membership of the growth Debt Cult. We can change this, we truly can, with a cultural, moral shift that has nothing to do with innovation or artificial intelligence or technology or any of the things that we are obsessively told we require for progress. We can live well, live happily, live contentedly within Earth's means by embracing modesty, frugality, fairness for all life, from the trees to the human beings. There are universal values and principles that can give us a much greater hope for the future. These principles are dignity, nature, purpose, fairness, participation. None of these principles are in any way impossible to achieve and it is certainly my belief that most of them are practiced daily by the majority of people. We have allowed our political systems to be shaped and bullied by greedy narcissistic alpha males. We don't have to live in the world the alpha male controls. Together we are much more powerful than them. In particular, one thing Caroline said sticks in my mind. If you can find ways to make the economy stabler and more fair and encourage more participation, then I think a lot of this kind of drive to overconsume that seems so ingrained would actually evaporate or at least diminish. The most powerful set of ideas that I have come across to achieve the principles of dignity, nature, purpose, fairness and participation can be found in the degrowth movement. I've gathered some quotes, thoughts and ideas that I think sum up what degrowth is about. Degrowth is about becoming richer in spirit richer in relationships with all life and all materials. Most importantly, it stresses the richness of our relationship with the natural world, that there we will find our true, deep, ancient self. To do this, it asks us to let go of consumerism and extreme individualism and superficial forms of fast entertainment. Degrowth is about reducing energy and waste production by at least 40% in order to live within the sustainable boundaries of the earth. Degrowth is about a radical rebalancing of wealth between humans, a rebalancing of rights between humans and all other life and materials. In a degrowth world, the rivers have rights. There will be no billionaires in a degrowth world. Degrowth rejects unlimited exponential economic growth as the definition of human progress. Degrowth requires a writing off of the imperial and colonial style debts that the global north has imposed on the global south. Degrowth seeks a decent and fair life for all within the means of the earth. Degrowth is about focusing on the well-being of humans and the natural environment rather than focusing on growth, productivity and efficiency. Degrowth is about the thriving of all life within natural limits. It is about sustainable living. Degrowth recognises that it is indigenous people who have the best skills, knowledge, wisdom and track record at maintaining biodiversity and managing the earth's resources sustainably. De recognises that it is the alpha male and his gang who are the greatest threat to life on earth. De recognises that elites have failed us, that in fact Elites' ravenous consumption are a great accelerant of the multiple crises we face. Degrowth is the opposite of capitalism, totalitarianism, dictatorship. It sees colonialism and imperialism as the key moments when unsustainable and nature-destroying practices exploded. Degrowth flourishes through community collaboration, through connecting humans back to nature, through global cooperation and deep respect for all. Degrowth recognizes that the Global North is the key driver and engine of the multiple crises facing life on Earth. It requires from those countries a radical change in their culture to one of much greater humility and acceptance and repentance for the incredible harms they have done. Degrowth is about getting cars out of cities, about universal public services, about the common good and not the frivolous gratification of the individual. Degrowth is about walking and cycling and thinking and using your own energy. Degrowth is is about using as little materials as possible, using them for as long as possible and ensuring that they have no end of life but are reused for new uses. Degrowth is about zero waste. Producing waste has become a key way capitalism drives economic growth. Reducing waste to zero is how degrowth moves. Degrowth removes gross domestic product as an indicator of progress and replaces it with the health and well-being of people, nature and the environment. Degrowth says that we must stop polluting, not that we can pay for pollution through growth and innovation. Degrowth says green growth is a dangerous delusion. Degrowth is about living better and more sustainable lives through working less and consuming less. Degrowth turns first to the imagination and to wisdom, not technology. Degrowth means less technology, more wisely applied. Degrowth improves the quality of our relationship with our own self, and the quality of our relationship with others by focusing on the quality of our relationship with nature and all other life and materials. Degrowth seeks to be a good ancestor. In all the conversations I've had putting this After the Gold Rush podcast together, one theme kept recurring, community action. To stop the mining oligarchs devastating the future of Ireland, communities must get organised as early as possible. Timing is essential. It is at the early stages that by far the greatest impacts can be had. Once the oligarchs get their dynamite in the ground, it is almost impossible to stop them. We must get organised Now, in Lyon, a community in northern Spain, they are getting organised. They have issued a manifesto which in part states the decision to turn the province of Lyon into a sacrifice zone to generate energy and extract all kinds of resources which will be sent to large cities and industrial nodes to continue maintaining an impossible growth in a world of finite resources is a flight forward in order to continue enhancing the current unsustainable way of life, which will also cause an increase in territorial and demographic imbalances. This model of false development is a continuation of the extractivism to which this province has been subjected since the last century and will bring about a new population emptying and will benefit only certain multinationals, not the population. In a scenario of reduced availability of fossil fuels, shrinking supply chains, ecological collapse, and climate crisis. The most sensible thing to do is to plan a reduction in unnecessary energy consumption, guaranteeing the basics, boosting local production and local consumption, instead of trying to maintain economic models based on energy transport, materials, and products from thousands of kilometers. The time for denying inconvenient truths has passed. What is at stake is the planned destruction of our territory. The wisdom we need is old and new. It has been there for a long time. We can rediscover it in the words of the Haudenosaunee Thanksgiving Address: "Greetings to the natural world. We are all thankful." To our mother, the earth, for she gives us all that we need for life. She supports our feet as we walk about upon her. It gives us joy that she continues to care for us as she has from the beginning of time. To our mother, we send greetings and thanks. Now our minds are one. We give thanks to all the waters of the world for quenching our thirst and and providing us with strength. Water is life. We know its power in many forms, waterfalls and rain, mists and streams, rivers and oceans. With one mind, we send greetings and thanks to the spirit of water. Now our minds are one. Our daughter Megan suffered a stroke last Thursday. Pat Gagan wrote to me on July 24th, 2023 as I was finishing recording this podcast. It was devastating to us. She's only 22. Things just seem to be going from bad to worse with our family now. Like countless, nameless millions of humans, animals, birds, fish, the Gagan family has suffered grievously from mining pollution. The price of progress, we're told. At some point, the environmental costs become too much to bear for the earth. That point is arriving. How will we respond? I will leave you with the brave voices of the environmental protectors, those working against all the odds to be good ancestors.
0: Rural Ireland is on the chopping block. It's really chilling. I mean, it's horrible, actually. Obviously, it's horrible. It's grotesque what's going on. A neighbour came to me and said to me,
2: there's lights up on the hill. And I said, it's probably the forestry guys up there, Quilchia, they're probably up there cutting because they work late. And he said, no, I don't see anyone from Queelche up there. I don't see any Queelch equipment going up there. I said, right, okay. I said, I'll go up and have a look. So I went up and had a look. And here I found all this prospecting equipment. Later on, when I had meetings with the geologist and, uh, you know, I said to him, why were you working up at night? And he said, well, when we were given the, the license, the prospecting license by the official, we were told to move everything in at night, move everything out at night and to do your best to keep the locals out of it. I was flabbergasted, as were the people who were witness to him saying that, like we all looked at each other going, what the hell? These are our government officials who are supposed to look after us, who are supposed to play fair. And, you know, I'm sorry, but that to me is corruption.
3: So it's just steeped in little lies and propaganda every step of the way.
0: When we're making decisions about mining, it's very important to have public participation and community participation in that. There's going to be some thought of mining in an area, the process needs to be completely transparent, and the communities need to have the right to say no as well. That's really important.
4: It has been, like, up to now, done in a very, like, kind of cook and dagger sort of way, you know.
3: We just find that people don't know about it. They just don't know about it. And the metals have had these prospecting licences for years and nobody really knew.
4: Done in a way to keep communities in the dark for as long as possible. We, we learned very quickly not to trust these people. Then.
5: They're not happy that we know this. We were very lucky to find out at all. We only ended up with a couple of days to make submissions.
0: It does mention of community participation, but it's, it's what they, the way that that's defined is giving accurate information to communities about mining. <laughs>
6: Three of our people have received death threats, including my own husband, as several have been knocked down by vehicles driven at them. A lot of intimidation. We live through a lot of
7: intimidation. We still do to this day.
6: Yeah, we still do to this day,
4: like, you
5: know. You know you're doing something right when people are starting to threaten you.
4: So we're not just up against a company, we're up against our government. It's a network of people helping each other in the hierarchy, and we're just the ordinary people on the ground suffering the consequences.
3: The policy of the Government of Ireland currently is that three men go into a room and make a decision.
4: Anybody out there that is fighting prospective licences and that the company gets that prospecting licence, for God's sake, don't let them in on your land, no matter what they offer you. Because once they're in, you will not get rid of them. They will ruin your life.
5: In the North, they need farmers' permission to access land for prospecting, but in the South, that's not the case now.
3: I have heard that some landowners have been aware there has been presence on their land,
5: but they weren't approached. The company comes in and if they're found on the land, they'll say, oh, we tried to find you and um, we just, we, just we, we couldn't find you, but now we're here.
2: They have all the tricks of the trade, like. Mark Twain said, and it's a saying I will never forget, a mine is a hole in the ground with a liar standing at the top of it. Miners were known to be liars then and nothing has changed. I'm really daunted for the Irish environment, the future of
3: Ireland. Ireland is seen as the most attractive place to come to mine right now in the world.
5: There's a race on in this country to try and find everything that's under the ground and to try and, what it looks like, to try and, and commercialise it and put it into private hands.
3: They really make it as attractive as possible for mining companies to come into the country. They offer tax concessions and streamlined permit granting pragmatic environmental regulations.
4: Irish governments, both North and South, basically sell Ireland off to these companies. The island of Ireland is actually both north and south um, in the top three of countries most attractive to mining companies. So the south's number one and the north's number three. So, in the whole world, that's pretty shocking. 25% in the north and 28% in the south is already concessioned to mining companies.
3: The Irish government sends a group over to a big Canadian conference every year to encourage mining companies to come over to Ireland.
0: Come and mine in Ireland, you know, wonderful country, welcoming people. Costs
8: are public and profit are
5: private. So all of these changes that we have to make, they seem to be providing opportunities for more exploitation rather than actually changing for positive change. There's only things to be lost by trying to process ore in an environment like Ireland.
3: Where do you hear it on the television? Where do people say it open and wide? Green transition is reliant on extractivism. Massive holes in the ground with poison in your water.
8: The problem in general around the world is not to find ore, minerals, and so on. All the earth crust is rich in in that. The problem is to mine it and uh, survive the consequences In general, it's never a good idea to inhale dust, as well as it's not a good idea inhaling uh, dust uh, from uh, red muds and uh, mining uh, byproducts.
7: Red dust can travel far. People's homes are always filled with red dust. It was Anish with the red dust that was traveling over Ireland, but the best way the DEPA could get Anish out of the problem was to say that it was Sahara dust. We know that it's Sahara dust. Does come to Ireland, but it's not coming. That the amount of times that they're saying, like big. now, and the other thing that the EPA can not maintain is that it can come onto our farm. These ponds are 450 acres in size, but the EPA would not admit that they come onto our farm. But they can admit that they can come from the Sahara to 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 Ireland or onto our farm. But we're five miles as the crow flies. But they won't admit that it's a that comes on to to ours.
4: They've broken their license numerous times. And as a reward last year, the EPA tripled their license. So now they can
6: triple the amount of sulfate they can put in. Dr. Emmerman said that he has worked in over 40 countries in the world. And he said that the Northern Ireland Environment Agency was the worst he has ever come across.
5: We did have a lot of interaction with the EPA around fracking. So we do know a little bit about the EPA. Our concern at the time was that they were going to be used uh, as a champion for the fracking industry. If the EPA were involved here, um, we know that they would be here to facilitate the gold mining
2: industry. I know for a fact that if anything starts in that hill, the EPA cannot be relied on. They're about as much use as a chimney on a cat. In fact, they're about as much use as a chocolate chimney on a cat. Because I've spoken to people who've worked in mines up and down the country, and they've all said the same thing to me. We were able to hoodwink them and lead them around by the nose stuff was done under the noses of the EPA inspectors turned a blind eye or worse again were so inept they didn't know what they were looking at the EPA
7: can't find it down there even though that um, the dogs in the street knows in in how they were dumping it EPA just looks after these um, big multinationals Um, but our environment um, is is destroyed. I would say that most of our laws do not uh, favor the locals or
6: the indigenous people living within these communities the overall government response hasn't been uh, encouraging and it's clear that the government is not um, listening to the people it's sometimes um, overwhelming to see them or to hear them say one thing in, in, in the in the eyes of the world in the eyes of other international leaders and do the other or the directly opposite in their home country. Freshwater pearl mussels, they are Ireland's only globally endangered species. And they need really clean water. And if Dalradian is allowed to discharge into the river, that will be the end of the freshwater pearl mussels.
2: The risks to our water, the risks to our biodiversity, the risks to our farmland are just unbearable. They're just, un, un, you just couldn't, it's unconscionable, you couldn't think about it. So there's a real concern
3: about the vulnerability of, of water sources here in Clare.
8: Groundwater, of course, groundwater is gone. All kind of food which is cultivated there, wine, olive, tr- olives and the like. <laughs> All has been banned at some point in time. The idea that you can control uh, the outflow from tailing ponds uh, is, uh, I think it's a mere illusion. These facilities should be looked after for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Uh, That is not uh, the case and very often these ponds are abandoned and more often than we know, uh, fail.
7: The waste is pumped out into these tailing ponds. They're 450 acres in size. A pond, a pond would be a big hole in the ground. When the ponds were uh, constructed, uh, they were allowed to not line the uh, these ponds. You're looking at 75 million tons at least down there.
4: There are like loads of abandoned mines that continue to contaminate.
8: If you're thinking about copper production, uh, gold production, of course, uh, silver production and the like, 99, 99 point something percent, it's waste. We are very, very, very efficient in creating huge dams.
6: We call ourselves protectors and defenders because that's what we're trying to protect the earth and the water and our land and our health thinking of our children, our grandchildren and the future generations. Each and every citizen of the country has the right to enjoy a safe and a clean
0: environment what kind of an economy do we want? The core thing is fairness. Just
4: bringing it back to what the economy actually means, which is like, you know, supporting us rather than exploiting us.
0: We could meet the needs of everybody in 2050, which is more people than now, you know, taking into account population growth. We could meet everybody's needs and they could all have a dignified life if we used about 40% of the energy that we use now.
8: We really need to change gear and to stop using the amount of materials we use
0: what's the actual point here what's the purpose of all of this you know rushing around extracting and producing stuff i don't think we should just assume it's impossible to do anything you know i think if there's enough will enough popular pressure then things can happen if you look at what's actually caused change in the world an awful lot of the time it comes from popular pressure and communities that's the way get the change gets done it's through community action
5: what we learned fighting fracking was that the only protection is from the people. This is a great little country because we can do that here. I mean, I wouldn't be, able, if we were in South America, I'd be long dead. The people of Leitrim exerted their own sovereignty. They said, no, you can't make this decision in secret. You can't decide that you're going to do this to us without you know any process and we are going to have our say.
7: They damaged our kids, they destroyed our lives. You can go and you can die without saying a word, but we are the opposite before we'll die. We're going to be vocal and we're going to stay vocal.
6: We're only the custodians of the earth for the time we're here, but like God, if we're going to leave it in such a bad state.
1: Thanks for listening to After the Gold Rush, a podcast series about how rural Ireland has been selected as a green sacrifice zone by the global mining industry and the Irish government and what local communities can do about it. Please get active by joining caimnetwork.org. That's C-A-I-M network.org. For more episodes, visit afterthegoldrushpodcast.com. Thank you.